Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. We love talking baseball with you, Larry. I love talking baseball and hearing about it. And there are so many names and faces and places. So with your permission, can I toss a few your way, a couple of softballs? Oh, no, by all means, throw hardballs. <laughs> all right, I'll throw a few curves here along the way. Oh, yeah, curves. you got to throw curves. First, oh, they got everything in baseball now. they got curves. they got they got uh, sliders, uh, knuckleballs. Too many pitching changes, but that's another story for yeah, another time. Another all right, Cecil and Octavia. That sounds like something out of the uh, the Roman Empire. What, what are we talking about here? <laughs> well, that's what I hoped when I wrote Cecil and Octavia, that you'd think it was something out of the Roman Empire. But actually, it's only out of out of uh, Red Sox Nation. So one day, um, maybe 20, 30 years ago, quite a while ago, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in the box seats, and there's a young lady next to me who's uh, very beautiful with caramel-colored skin. And uh, so I started talking with her. You know, why not? As you do. As I do, yeah. (laughs) So I I asked her this, that, and the other thing, and uh, I said, well, uh, how come you're here at the ballpark? She said, well, my, my husband is playing for the Red Sox. I said, oh, really? That's interesting. Um, what's his name? His name is uh, Cecil Cooper. Oh, I was he's one of my favorite players. <laughs> Loved Cecil Cooper. So, you, so, so I said, yeah, go ahead. Let me guess. She's Mrs. Cooper, a.k.a. Octavia? Right. Ah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, and so I said to her, well, he, he was a rookie that season. So I said, um, well, you know, as I've read Octavia, he, I think he's going to be a very fine player. And it uh, looks like he will be. He says, very fine player. She said to me, in a very pleasant way, very fine player. He's going to, my, my Cecil is going to be a superstar. You need a good, strong woman behind you if you're in this game. <laughs> and, you know, um, naturally he was a rookie. And uh, I said to myself, well, maybe, who knows, well, he did become, I don't know whether he was a superstar, but he was a one hell of a player. And one season he batted three fifty two. He had a 17-year career. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the three fifty two came in another uniform. And he was a, one of the first black managers. I think he managed, uh, I forget what team. I think it was one of the ones down south. They both came from Texas. They were high school sweethearts. I would be surprised if they weren't married today. Because Cecil Cooper was a very nice man. Everybody knew that. Very likable fellow. And uh, so where did he play? Center field or? He was a first baseman, wasn't he? Okay. I thought he played a little outfield too, but you may be right, first base. The fact of the matter is he did a lot of things. He was a a very utile player. He he could field, he could hit, he could run. He was a fast runner. Yeah. And he he was a nice looking guy, a nice guy. And he played good ball for the Red Sox. And uh, Octavia, um, as I say, I would be surprised if they weren't married today because she was a very nice young woman. Where, where were the seats? I'm asking that for a reason. Remind me where you were sitting at that point. I was sitting in the um, in the boxes on the – I think we might have been behind the screen. If we weren't behind the screen, we were very close to the screen on the third base side. Why? Okay, because no, I know the wives and players' families have certain areas that they sit in. Um, I thought it was more – 
to the Red Sox side, to the Red Sox dugout side. No, th- well, no, this one was on the third base oh. side. And this is not the only story, Jordan, I have to tell you about beautiful dark women that I've met in the stands over there. If that doesn't get people's ears to perk up, I don't know what <laughs> would. Well, what, what would be another example of, of that? Well, what to, read the next uh, entry right. I gave to you. Otis and his beauty. Would that be the Otis with the last name of a famous or infamous president by any chance? Oh, it's got you puzzled, Otis and, uh, and, and his beauty. Is it Otis Nixon? It is. Ah, see? I told you, <laughs> infamous president. All right, but I have to hear the story, so please. Well, I, I, I was seated in roughly the same area. Mm-hmm. And I, that day I was with my very good friend, who now lives on the West Coast, but he's still my very good friend. I think I've mentioned him before, John Caulfield. I was the best man at his wedding for his second marriage. And John uh, was uh, sitting there. And um, Otis at that time, I think, was playing for Cleveland. We remember that Otis was very fast, stole a lot of bases, couldn't hit a lot. And uh, so there was this dark lady, very lovely looking, and I started to talk to her. What else is new? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, so one thing led to another, and she says, oh, yeah, I'm married to one of the ballplayers. Oh, who would that be? That's Otis Nixon. That's him out there, my husband. I said, oh, that's fantastic. And... On that particular day, Wade Boggs was really up to his old tricks. I think he, I it was, I think he had. Well, I'm not sure whether it was a doubleheader. If it was a single game, he might have had four hits or something like mm-hmm. that. No, it was a doubleheader, and I think he had seven for eight for the day, and he kept hitting the ball. You know as as well as I do as a baseball fan that Wade Boggs, who was an incredible hitter, six two, two hundred pounds. Could have hit home runs if he felt like it, yeah. but he wanted to hit for average. And so this very powerful man who could hit home runs but didn't bother with them hit these ferocious line drives. And a couple of those line drives um, almost decapitated the pitcher. And uh, so my friend John, who was delighted to talk to the young lady but also did not want to um, – uh, he didn't like Boggs to – to be good because he thought Boggs was, oh, he's a singles and doubles hitter. And I didn't know, come on, John, the guy hits the ball as hard as anybody in the world. So that um, in that particular day, uh, they finally took um, Boggs out of the second game, maybe the seventh or eighth inning, and everybody stood up in the ballpark and gave him a tremendous cheer because he was so good that day. It looked like nobody could get him out ever. He was a machine, a hitting machine oh, in those was, days. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So John says to me, uh, what are they all cheering about? So I said, well, John, I think I told this story before. I'm not sure. But he said, They're cheering because he's the greatest F <laughs> oh. we're hitter you've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe except Ted Williams. So he had a problem with the fact that he was a single slap hitter. Yeah, he also had a problem with Mozart when we went to the Boston Symphony. He would, he would from four rows away, would turn around and say, after Beethoven, a Beethoven symphony, what do you think of that, you F-word again, Mozart fan? Wow. Anybody who criticizes Mozart and Wade Boggs has <laughs> got a chip on his shoulder, I'll tell you. That's, that's funny. That's really funny. Well, he doesn't think much of these podcasts either. Well, John ought to be a guest of ours. We ought to sit him down next to you. And he, he's really a wonderful guy. Put him under the microphone and see what he does at that point. <laughs> well, you so, know, he was a very well-known uh, – he was 
big in the pharmaceutical industry, and he was big here in Boston. He had his own lab over at Harvard Medical School um, looking into schistosomiasis, which is a tropical mm. disease that affects the eyes and so forth. So, And John was a very good friend, and we were very different. He, We would walk around the whole city, uh, and, uh, you know, I would, when I dressed up, I'm in threads. When he dressed up, he was in a T-shirt. So we- <laughs> <laughs> Real character, no question. And you've known a bunch. Okay, let's go to Bunny and Luxury. Okay, let me see if I can figure this out. Luxury box, maybe? Boy, you're a smart guy. Uh, the Bunny part, I'm cashing in my chips. I have no idea what that well, is. Well, Bunny Solomon was the biggest fundraiser in— Oh, that Bunny. I now know who you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> and, he knew, and he knew Harry Truman. When Harry Truman ran for president, uh, he said, Oh, Bunny, you're the you're the guy they called Bunny, you know, when they were on the train from western Massachusetts to the eastern Massachusetts. But anyway, Bunny uh, was a bank executive with—I uh, think they called it— uh, Bank of Boston or something. It was subsumed when all these banks started mm. uh, merging. And uh, but Bunny uh, one day invited us to leave the hoi polloi down below and come up to the luxury box to share the vittles. Is that the word? I believe that is the case. Very fine food they serve it, at Fenway. Right. Yeah. Park. And the inside and the outside. Oh, yeah. It was a cool night. This another Boggs was the leader that night. He hit. I don't know, a triple and a couple of doubles of them. But anyway, he invited Lois and me, uh, my now-departed father-in-law, who loved it, um, Alan Roper, who's a very well-known uh, neurologist in Boston. He was at the MGH, then he was at St. Elizabeth's. Now he's back at, uh, at MGH. And, uh, you know, Alan has been a leading doctor for a long time. Uh, I think Alan came with his young son at the time. This is about 25 years ago. And uh, that son brought along a friend of his whose last name was Hiroga, the son of the guy that used to be the reporter. Oh, Anthony. And, uh, from from Channel— Jose uh Wait a minute. Uh, Channel 5. Uh, Jorge. Yeah, Jorge. Jorge Caroga. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very much. Right. Local, local reference, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and Bunny, of course, was there, who was a very— um, you know, easy to, to like. Was guy. that your first time in a luxury b- a suite, Lair? Might have been. Yeah. It's a different experience. It almost feels – it's very corporate. You feel like you're apart from things, but yet you've got a great view of the park. You do have a great view of the park, although I'd rather sit in the box seats because you can see the faces and stuff like that. Right, right. And when, some of these stories I'll tell you about that I, I did sit in the box seats and they were great. Um, but uh, that was a very nice night, and uh, we enjoyed it up there. And I've sat in the luxury boxes since as a guest of the Red Sox and will again, I suppose. That's right. And That's right. Uh, they invited me to come there with uh, Henry Louis Gates. That hasn't happened yet, but I hope it does because, uh, you know, Henry Louis and I have developed sort of a pen pal relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, a, that was a very nice night. And uh, uh, it was cool, so we sometimes took refuge, but it was... A nice experience. <laughs> now, the next name on our list, uh, uh, this has got to be only one person, uh, responds to Louis, Louis. <laughs> That's got to be the ageless El Tiante, Louis Tiant. Yeah, and, you know, I thought he was uh, one of the most entertaining baseball players I've ever seen. First of all, he was an excellent, excellent pitcher. And uh, whether he should be in the Hall of Fame, I don't know. He won about... 230 games. and mm-hmm. But the thing that made him so entertaining was that he was a whirling dervish or something like that. He would twirl. He was a very colorful guy. 
he would turn his back while he uh, while getting ready to throw. When he was lifting his leg, he would turn his back uh, to the batter and then come around, and he could throw the ball very hard. And he was uh, – I just uh, wanted to mention him because of all the Red Sox players, there's some that stand out for color, and certainly Louie was one of them. And another one that I think of in the same category is in the entry that – uh, you know, read that entry and uh, see if you can figure out. I think I told oh, that story before. Well, that's okay, but uh, it's the name is so obvious to Red Sox fans and baseball fans, and that's Pedro. It's got to be Pedro Martinez. Well, I never saw a pitcher like Pedro. I mean, with all due respect, that I'll talk about. Uh, I'll talk about uh, the great right-hander that uh, we had in Boston uh, for a long time, um, being uh, Roger Clemens, mm-hmm. but I, who won. 360 or something games. But Pedro, in his heyday with the Red Sox, was unbelievable. First of all, he won more than three times the number he lost. I think his winning percentage was an unbelievable when he, in those five years, first five years with the Red Sox of over 750, and his earned run average was down around two. And every time he pitched, uh, he would either strike out 10 or more or close to it. The, the guys that hit, hit against him didn't seem to have much of a clue how to hit him because he was not only could throw the ball very fast, but very with a lot of stuff on it when he wanted. And uh, he was also another thing that appealed to me about Pedro Martinez was that he showed his, he was a real Latin. Well, first of all, he was supremely intelligent, he learned English very quickly Mm -hmm. and spoke it very well. Mm -hmm. I used to kid around that he spoke. What do you think of a guy that that can speak English better than Roger Clemens? (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of people on those teams in those days. Well, indeed. So that in Marty Appel, who used to be the public relations manager for the Yankees and, uh, and wrote, uh, has written 20 books about baseball, liked what I wrote about Pedro Martinez in a story that I wrote. I forget, I'm paraphrasing, but I wrote that, Every time you watched him, he showed his intelligence, pride uh, in being a a representative of a Latin nation, the Dominican Republic, Uh, his fighting spirit, his indomitable attitude, uh, his willingness to fight even though he had a relatively slight frame for what he wanted. I think that uh, Pedro Martinez was a remarkable character and in a uh, person and it leads me to say something I may have said before that one of the reasons we love these baseball players Jordan is because we get to know them so well first of all you know on television now you can see their faces and you can see you know you with their mm. body language and they represent to us uh, the best of them and the the ones that put professionalism at least on the same power as money-making, and some of them even more, even though they make oodles of money. And I think they become, uh, heroes might be the wrong word, they become role models yeah. for us. And we, why do we revere them? Well, we certainly revere them for their baseball ability. There's no question about that. These guys, we may be the same size. You know, they're not that much bigger than we are, and they say, you know, just ordinary-sized people. But they do things that are so remarkable. When you watch some of these double plays or whatever they do, mm. they make great plays. So that um, that's just a side thing I'm throwing in 
about um, uh, uh, about baseball players and why we're close to them. Uh, let's do one more set of names. Did I say? Uh, oh, did you want to talk about the parking and satisfaction? Yeah, I think I told that story because the first time he pitched in Boston, I I couldn't get a parking space, so it was over on Huntington Avenue. Didn't I tell that story about uh, the police uh, took the car away and? To some place in Jamaica Plain? Where... <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. What happened? Oh, God. this is. I don't remember it's, this it's one. It's the lowest story. Oh, well, you have to tell it now. I didn't tell this one before. You stopped me if I've told okay. this story before. So I want to go to see this game. And uh, it was on a Saturday afternoon, I think. And, you know, everybody said, well, Pedro Martinez, they got him. You know, Dan Duquette got him, and uh, I think. And, uh, you know, you got to see him. So I parked over. I could, that was the closest I could get. And it was in a... I think it was a no parking, no more than an hour, whatever the hell it was. So I parked there, and I went over there, and I got a seat. Place was jammed. Pedro pitched a terrific game, won the game, and that was his first game in pitching in Boston. I walked back to the car, gone. So I, uh, I, so I went home, took the tea home, and I called. Oh yeah, it's over in uh, Jamaica Plain, in this, in a dusky place that you'd be afraid to step into, and um, so. They said it'll cost you over a hundred bucks to get the car. I said, well, "What can you do?" Cash, by the way. If, Cash, if I'm whatever. not mistaken. Yeah, right. you, you got to prove it. So that um, I said to Lois, "Well, we'll take a ride over there." She wasn't. She was unhappy. That's a, a mild term, but she became unhappier because when we drove over there and got there, uh, I fished around for the keys to the car in my pocket, and I thought, "My God, no keys!" I said, "We have to go back home." Oh. Double whammy. Well, you know, there were people around. Otherwise, she would have executed me yeah. on the spot. So we went back. And we that got... is one of the sickening feelings in life that you just never forget when the car has gone. It, where is it? It's gone. It's been towed. Wow. But you'll never forget that game as a result. Well, I never forgot the game. I never forgot the incident. We went back home. We came and we got the keys and we bailed the thing out. And the whole day cost me a couple of hundred bucks. But I said to my – but, you know, ultimately I said, well – it was worth it to see this guy. There you go. Uh, we can ask Lois what she thinks of that, <laughs> whether it was it won't worth be it. The, she liked Pedro. but Let, Let's do one more couplet here, and I'm going to see if I can come up with the answers. Tim and David. Would that be Tim Nairing by any chance? No. No. Okay. Would it be a couple of sports writers by any chance? All right. Then no. I pass. I pass. Oh, you can get that. Well, I don't want to waste the listener's time. Well, we won't waste their time. Okay, we're talking about Tim Wakefield. <laughs> oh, gosh darn. My my bad. And David Ortiz. Oh, just the obvious, the most obvious. The great knuckleballer and the great uh, home run hitter and clutch player. Well, these are two players that really rise in Red Sox history because Tim Wakefield won 200 games in his career when nobody thought he would be anybody. And uh, most of them, 180-something were for the Red Sox. And he did everything. He was he was he was a reliever. He was a starter mostly. He was a mop up guy. He pitched innings to save other guys' arms. And he and afterwards, um, when he retired, he went into he does a lot of charitable work for the Red Sox. He's a hell of a guy, Tim Wakefield. He's on TV. He's an analyst. I mean, he's a really good guy. And David Ortiz, you know, arguably is the greatest player in Red Sox history, if it's not Ted Williams, because. Uh, not only did he have this unbelievable record as a clutch player, but he ended his career in a year in which he won four or five different categories on base percentage, runs batted in, God knows what. I mean, how could a guy do this at age 40? 
Um, he, he was still as great as he ever was. Well, here's the question to wrap this one up, and this may not be an easy, simple answer, but uh, there were accusations that he was using steroids and certainly Roger Clemens and others. What's your take on players' availability or uh, players' likelihood to make the Hall of Fame with those kinds of black marks against their career? Basically, I think they were all great players, and they may not have done quite as well if they hadn't taken those drugs. And it's so mixed up as to who did what, when, and it's uh, it, there's a lot of doubt about some of the accuracy of these tests. Some took drugs a lot. Some took drugs a little. I think most of them are great players. They say that Manny Ramirez took drugs a lot, but he didn't in Cleveland. And his eight-year record with the Red Sox looks like a, a, a mirror image of his eight-year career earlier with Cleveland. You know, my attitude, let them all in. Okay. That's, that's good. You came right to the point. Let them all in. Now, as far as this day is concerned, Lois and I are sitting in the third base stands. The game is really a tight game. It goes 2-2 two to two to the ninth inning. Comes the ninth inning, the Angels bring in, uh, and Guerrero's playing right field, not the younger Guerrero, the older Guerrero, Vladimir. And um, it was 2-2, two to two, and they bring in Scott Shields, who was a good relief pitcher at the time. And uh, David Ortiz comes up, I think with a guy on base, and we're staring into the lights in right field. He hits the ball, the crack of the bat, as I can hear it in my head now, and the ball just took off, but it went into the glare of the lights. But already I knew that it was a home run because I could just tell the way it left the bat, and I could see Guerrero didn't move in mm. right field. Mm. So I said to myself, this is not only a game-winning home run, but this is a long game-winning home run. Came down 20 rows up in the bleachers and ended the game and made Wakefield who pitched the whole game, the winner. You don't forget moments like that. Uh, and, and the most memorable moment outside of on-field play for David Ortiz was right after the marathon bombing when he took the microphone and uh, spoke his mind about the city. People can look that up on YouTube. Larry, this is fascinating. I want to get into players of the past, including the enemy players and some of those interesting characters from uh, Red Sox history that you love to reminisce about. So with your permission, we'll do that, okay? Yeah, and Jordan, as far as you're concerned, um, I know you're as big a fan as I am, so whatever you want to say about this stuff, say it. Well, the fact that I brought up a guy named Tim Nairing tells you how deep my fandom goes. I wasn't even thinking of Tim Wakefield first and foremost. But anyway, Larry, we'll see you next time. And I remember Tim Nairing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.